Welcome to the Hallowed Halls. I'm Danielle, the Armchair Scholar, and this is my guide to the strange and unusual things that capture the imagination, that make your skin crawl, and that haunt you long after you've walked out of the movie or put down the book. Let's take a journey through film, television, books, and the works of actual scholars to get a better look at the tropes, legends, lore, and mythologies that make up these weird worlds and their inhabitants. Welcome back to the second episode of our look at cannibalism. In our first episode, we took the time to take a tour around the history of cannibalism in different narratives, ranging from some of our most well-known stories to tales that have haunted American history. This time around, we're going to be looking into the world of fictional cannibals, and you may be surprised to find out that there are a fair number more fictional flesh-eaters than the good Dr. Lecter. In fact, because there are so many to cover, if you head over to my Patreon, you can find the discussions on those that didn't make the cut included in the extra credits for this month. As you can tell, however, we have a lot to cover this time around, and since that's the case, let's jump right in by looking at a couple of complementary figures that may be some of the oldest fictional cannibals that we still talk about now. We talked last time about the ways in which fairy tales made use of cannibalism as a means of getting across certain messages, but we didn't get a chance to talk very specifically about the cannibals featured in these stories. Granted, most of the tales that we know were focusing their attention on the children that were trying to escape the hungry mouths of those who would consume them. We're shifting away this time to talk less about Jack or Snow White or Hansel, to look at the powerful female figure that offers either salvation from the world that vexes you, or a one-way ticket to her soup pot. This figure can go by a number of different names, but the one that pop culture knows her best by is Baba. We talked about Baba Yaga before as part of our discussion on the life cycles of monstrous maidens, but it bears repeating that she is a bit of a significant figure in the world of the monstrous feminine, particularly for what she does. Baba Yaga is a chaotic figure that is neither good nor bad, and her unpredictable emotional tides seem to decide the fate of the person that stands before her. She's also very well known to be someone who consumes other human beings, which immediately puts her at odds with the role that women traditionally play in any given narrative. Other cannibal stories, such as those found in Greek mythology, more often than not feature a male antagonistic figure, such as Saturn eating his children. According to fairy tale scholar Marina Warner in her book No Go the Boogeyman, it is significant that in Greek myth, women never appear to commit the outrage of devouring their children, going on to state that they do not eat their own offspring on purpose, nor are they duped into feasting on their own children, as many a fairy tale king has been. Warner describes this as the act of inverted birthing, which when applied to a male character, sees them as struggling to keep power over those who might oppose and eventually replace them, like the aforementioned Saturn. 
In the greater world of fairy tales, we've already seen this in regards to the evil queen in Snow White, but even then, it's important to note that she failed. Even then, there is a sense that the characters of those stories were driven to cannibalize those around them in their lust for power. By contrast, Baba Yaga is inherently powerful, and any encounter with her brings to mind the old adage, I brought you into this world, and I can take you out of it. Baba Yaga has been featured in quite a few Slavic tales, but one of the better known is a story called Vasilisa the Fair. If you're unfamiliar, there is a full version of the tale in the show notes, but for our purposes, we'll cover the basics here. The story tells of a beautiful girl who becomes more or less the slave to an evil stepmother after her wealthy merchant father dies. Her wicked stepmother and sisters make Vasilisa move out to a cabin on the edge of the dark wood. One day, in an effort to get rid of the girl, the stepmother and sisters put out all the lights in their cabin and tell Vasilisa to go out seeking Baba Yaga to convince her to give her a light. Armed with nothing but her diligence and a small wooden doll that had been a gift from her actual mother, she goes to find the house on chicken legs, and with it, she finds Baba Yaga. The girl is given a series of impossible tasks that are designed to make her fail, as her host is clearly interested in killing her. But with her enchanted doll's help, Vasilisa is able to complete everything. Angry at being thwarted, Baba Yaga challenges the girl and demands to know how she finished her tasks. When she answers that it was by her mother's blessing, the old woman becomes enraged and kicks Vasilisa out. She sends her away with one of the flaming skulls that line the front of her house. In the time that Vasilisa had been trying to avoid becoming the main ingredient in Baba Yaga's next meal, it turns out that the wicked stepmother and sisters could not keep a light going in their cabin. If you're thinking that Vasilisa's return would prompt them to appreciate her for the wonderful and good person she was, you would be incorrect. Instead, upon arriving at the cabin, the flaming skull incinerates the other members of the house the second they lay eyes on it, and Vasilisa buries the skull. Freed from her awful family, the girl moves to Moscow and eventually marries the Tsar. Even if you've never heard the story of Vasilisa and her family destroying Flame Skull, you might still have heard this tale before, albeit with a slightly less gruesome ending. The story of Frau Hola, sometimes called Mother Holda in English, was recorded by the Brothers Grimm, and it also concerns a fair maiden whose industrious nature is rewarded by an old woman. For those who haven't reviewed this story in a while, it covers basically all the same tracks as Vasilisa the Fair, with only a few minor but significant differences. For one, instead of the mother's guiding spirit in the form of a wooden doll, the girl is just your generic good protagonist whose kindness and willingness to do small, menial tasks wins the day. Another departure is that instead of being sent to the woods and directly into danger, the young girl drops into a well to retrieve a bloodied-up spindle, only to find herself in a kind of promised land where she meets Frau Hola. The other, much more important difference, 
is the old woman who eventually aids her. While Vasilisa is made to do impossible tasks, most of which are designed with the hope that she fails so Baba Yaga can justify eating her, this girl is given the super difficult task of shaking out bedding every day so that the feathers fly out into the air and create the same kind of snowstorms that doomed the Donner Party. It's made clear that Frau Hola is never really a danger to her, and when she chooses to leave, her rewards are immediate, as opposed to Vasilisa, who more or less earned her way through life, through her skill, and eventually married into royalty. Frau Hola is a lot more direct with its message of the kind and the beautiful being showered with riches while the ugly and lazy are doomed to be covered in pitch for a life of idleness. And it might be easy enough to hand-wave away the idea that this is just a story where the cannibal parts got lost in translation. That said, there are some in Germany who believe that Frau Hola is linked to a lot more cannibalism than we might have originally been led to believe. According to an article by C. Voigtman, there is a series of caverns and underground caves beneath the second peak of a mountain called Kaifhauser, home to a stone carving of Emperor Wilhelm I. In the 1950s, these caves were discovered to contain a number of offerings made to a feminine death deity, and among these were spindles and human remains, many of children and young girls. Voigtman makes a note of the fact that the remains contained charred and broken bones, some of which were speculated to have been cracked to get at the marrow. Considering that some of these findings were dated as being from the Bronze Age, to the early Iron Age, we can't be certain of what exactly happened and why, but if Voigtman's speculations are something that we consider, then it paints the tale of Frau Hola in a completely different light. It's worth mentioning, as well, that the better-known versions of this tale were adapted by the Grimm's, who were well-known to edit out any residual pagan influences, as well as any kind of sexual content from the stories they collected. If they did create a new narrative through their editorial choices to remove the cannibalism from the tale, this would both distinguish Frau Hola from Baba Yaga, while also bringing them closer together in spirit. While Baba Yaga embodies a kind of chaos and the unpredictable nature of life and death, Frau Hola can be interpreted as a kind of invitation to the underworld, where we might yet be judged by the quality of our character, based on how we behave in her realm. In both of these instances, you have these powerful figures whose cannibalistic sides might be seen as a kind of divine punishment for some, but in the case of Frau Hola, Specifically, it can also be seen as a kind of spiritual sacrifice that, when made in good faith, will lead to further blessings. In this tale, the two girls give of themselves, but only the one who is truly good finds herself rewarded for it, while the other is marked for life for her sins. While it is a dramatic take, we can look at hunger and food through the lens of faith and how important a role it plays in major religious holidays that revolve around sacrifice. One such holiday that is marked by a major food sacrifice is Ramadan. 
For those who aren't aware, Ramadan is the Muslim holiday wherein for a month practitioners of the faith will fast for the day and only partake in meals and even anything to drink between sunset and sunrise the next day. The act of going hungry is supposed to be a time of reflection and a chance to work on their relationship to God and practice the core tenets of their faith. At the end of the month-long sacrifice comes a large celebration to mark the breaking of the fast. In the Western world, this is a familiar kind of sacrifice to many of us, especially those who are or were of the Christian faith. The period of Lent is also marked as a type of sacrifice, where followers are encouraged to give up something for the holy period, though what they sacrifice is mostly left up to them, and usually not as painful as a month of going without food for whole days. That said, oftentimes food is something that is offered as a personal sacrifice, whether it be sweets or certain kinds of food like takeout, or, especially for some, meat. We bring this up because when looking back at our fairy tales that we've seen, it is significant that our sacrifices of hard work and piety are rewarded by seemingly godlike female figures that have the power to consume you otherwise. It presents an interesting contrast that sacrifices of something that we need to stay alive are marked with a feast, but especially in the case of Ramadan, to get to that reward, the famine must be experienced too. Here, hunger and feasting are the ultimate acts of affirmation of faith, and are used as a means to strengthen the bond to the divine. That said, this isn't the only way in which food has been used as a means to connect to a deity. Food as a means to connect us to the divine is something that has been seen as a staple of part of Sunday Mass for ages. Communion is the act of taking a piece of bread or a wafer, and accepting it as a symbol of the body of God made human. Believers partake in this act as a kind of sacred cannibalism, as a means to honor the sacrifice their God made through his death, and to assimilate with him by taking a part of his body into themselves. This act is rarely called cannibalism because it isn't associated or meant to associate with the horrors that that word normally conveys. It's an act of faith and hope that unites believers in the common assertion that there is more to the bread that they receive than it simply being food. Within the act, they become closer to being godlike, the bread being a symbol of their acceptance of the values and the commands of this deity into their own lives. In this regard, the act of cannibalism that's described is not a horrific transgression, but rather a sacrificial gift from God. Ideally, when one partakes in communion, their thoughts are on how to honor this sacrifice by becoming better, more loving, and kind people to become more like the deity that they have that desired bond with. That said, not all symbolic cannibalism inspires hope and the want to better oneself. Sometimes symbolic cannibalism is indicative of something a lot darker in society. In 1979, indigenous author and scholar Jack D. Forbes wrote the book Columbus and Other Cannibals about the concept of something his ancestors called the Wetigo. 
Forbes goes into great detail about what a wetigo is, but in short, he gives the definition that this is the disease of the consuming of other creatures' lives and possessions, which he likens to a form of spiritual cannibalism. Forbes wrote about how this spiritual disease was a major factor in colonialism, hence the title of the book. He spoke specifically about how the wetigo takes from not only mankind, but nature, consuming everything with no regard for the damage that it leaves behind. If this concept sounds vaguely familiar, it's something that has been spotted in popular culture for the last five to ten years, though the figure has been boiled down to more of a monster of the week more recently. Other indigenous nations had called this figure the Wendigo, and it is a complicated figure that encompasses a lot of lore and contains a lot of information about the values and the fears of their society. Seeing as I am not indigenous, I won't be going too far into this topic outside of its popular culture representations, but as a jumping off point for us, we should note that the Wendigo was not simply a monster or a flesh eater. Much like what Forbes described, this spirit is a highly infectious kind of greed that fills those who suffer with it with an insatiable hunger that can never be filled and drives them to consume more. Descriptions of the figure tell not of a woodland creature, but of a person who exists like a living skeleton, who devours all before it, including the bodies of other human beings, but can never gain any nutrients from it, and so it continues to starve. Again, this is a very basic overview, and the concept is a lot more nuanced and tied into cultural beliefs and teachings, so if you are interested in learning more, please refer to Forbes' book or other Indigenous authors who have written about the subject. For our purposes, however, we're going to look back at probably one of the more careful attempts to adapt the Wendigo in fiction by looking at the film Ravenous. Before I begin chatting about this movie, I do want to put out there that this film was made in 1999, and, as all things in the past tend to have, isn't without its issues. For one, while they did cast two indigenous actors to play their appropriate roles, and said roles were not entirely horrible, they were the only indigenous people involved in the making of this film. The writers and the people behind the scenes were all white, and the story centers on two white men with little to no regard for any of the people who were living on that land at the time. Considering that this film is set just after the US had recently won the war they'd fought with Mexico over Texas, there is a considerable lack of any kind of mention of that beyond the opening scenes. Even if we take into account that this narrative isn't meant to encompass that much of the history behind that timeline, it still casts aside any other unrest that might have been going on in the country in favor of centering the white narrative. That said, given how they treat the figure of the Wendigo and its relationship to cannibalism, this wasn't the worst depiction you'll find. I still want to acknowledge this before moving on, because while I do believe that this film does embody a bit more of the concept of the Wendigo, and does more than reduce it to a monster of the week, like we've seen in more recent shows like Supernatural, this is still not a very accurate depiction of the concept, and it waters down the real teachings and the cultural significance of the creature. As long as we keep this in mind, 
I also want to talk about how this appropriation of the concept works in this film better than what we see in other adaptations of it. For those of you who haven't seen it, the film opens with the introduction of our main character, John Boyd, played by Guy Pierce. Boyd is a survivor of the Mexican-American War, and has been honored as a hero for getting behind enemy lines and taking them by surprise. At least, in the eyes of the public, and those who matter, he is. In reality, it's revealed that his superiors know that Boyd is a coward, and in the middle of that battle, he abandoned his troops and laid down, pretending that he was dead. His victory was gained by trickery through just a turn of luck, as he'd been hauled away as just another corpse and piled onto a wagon along with the rest of the dead around him. This not only gave him an opportunity to surprise the enemy, however, as being piled with a lot of dead bodies also left him drowning in their blood, giving him a strange hunger that gives him strength but scares him all the same. When he returns to his superiors, it is clear that Boyd is a deeply frightened man, suffering from PTSD and a secret shame under the valor that he's been granted. As a punishment for getting his entire unit of men killed during battle, he is sent to a remote post in the Sierra Nevada mountains in California. It's here that he meets his shadow. Shortly after he arrives at this new post, a stranger who calls himself Calhoun makes his way to the camp and after collapsing into their care, he tells them a horrifying tale that is not unlike the story of the Donner Party. Calhoun describes how he and a number of other travelers had been led by a cruel and manipulative man named Colonel Ives into a place where they got caught by a terrible winter storm. Soon, the food supply begins to run out, and as the winter became even harder on the travelers, their options began to run low before things became grim. If this sounds familiar, you're probably noticing exactly how similar this is to those who've ended up at Donner Lake. The twist, however, is that the man who tells this story openly admits that he caved to his needs to eat the dead, and that when he left, most of the party had been eaten. Calhoun also admits that he was led by his own cowardice to run for help, leaving behind a woman with the now mad Ives to fend for herself. This automatically makes it the problem of those in the camp, who are charged with needing to figure out where Ives is, and if the woman he was left with survived. To this point, the film might just be a retelling of the Donner story, stripped down to just a few key players, until the point where they reach where the survivors were supposed to be. Turns out, Calhoun had been less than truthful about the turn of events, and proceeds to kill and cannibalize everyone except for Boyd, who once again tries to tuck his tail and run. In a fit of terror, he even tries to commit suicide, jumping off a ledge and landing in a thicket of trees, along with the body of one of his fellow camp members. Survival means resorting to the one thing that has been on his mind since he'd been baptized by the blood of those he got killed in the war. From here, Boyd and Calhoun are locked in a silent battle where the former is well aware of the danger that the latter presents to those around them. It's revealed that Calhoun is indeed ravenous, true to the definition that Forbes had come up with before. When he re-emerges later on in the film, 
This time, he is dressed not as a desperate stranger, but a man in uniform. He directly represents both physically and figuratively the aggressive arm of Manifest Destiny and its need to take over the western coast. If we think back to what we learned about last time when it came to the shaping of the U.S. during the travels of the Darner Party, we already know that their entire journey had been orchestrated and made possible by the greed of those in power, or those who wanted it. Men like Lansford Hastings, whose entire reasoning for writing The Emigrant's Guide to Oregon and California was to bolster his own profits. This man was responsible for the murder of many indigenous people and for the horrific suffering of many deaths of those who traveled with the Donner Party, and many more like them. And we can't forget that the whole reason that this was even possible was thanks to men like President Polk, who orchestrated the Mexican-American War for the sole purpose of gaining the western coast for the simple fact of wanting it. This need to take something for the sake of getting more is at the heart of what drove the western expansion of America, and this is the unflinching portrayal of Manifest Destiny that hangs over everything in Ravenous. As writer David Ehrlich wrote for his review in Rolling Stone, Calhoun's twisted grin is horrifying proof that the hunger for power only grows more acute once you've had a taste of what's on the stovetop. In this case, the cannibal is unrepentant in his want for not just the land, but those who inhabit it and everything that comes with it. He sees those who will come to him as just more to feed upon and grow stronger for it, but he will never be sated in his want for more. While this is entirely too simplistic and divorced from the cultures that told the tales of the Wendigo, this is closer to the kind of figure that was described by Forbes. Calhoun is a monster that still looks like a man, but within him is a beastly hunger that shows that he is capable of killing everything around him, and the want to do so only grows stronger with each new victim. Of course, power isn't the only desire that our cannibals are driven by. As we mentioned before, from the time that the two men are able to talk to each other, there is a connection between Calhoun and Boyd. For one, they understand the hunger that the other one feels in a way that sets them apart from the rest of the group. There's an immediate understanding that they cannot speak openly about it, but they recognize this within one another. They're also, as we later find out, both military men who have come up in the ranks and achieved some means of success. In some interpretations, they can even be read as being the uncomfortable dual nature of the same person, both men being equals and opposites. On one hand, you have Boyd, who is a haunted liar in the sense that he presents the front of a respected war hero, but is hiding a deep forbidden hunger and an even deeper shame. He is aloof and very clearly hiding his true face behind a layer of stoicism. By contrast, Calhoun plays the role of a respected colonel, who's both likable and smart, and he seems quite at ease with everyone around him. He is also a liar to everyone but Boyd, whom he treats almost like a protege. He represents everything that terrifies Boyd the most, as he ruthlessly embraces his cannibalistic nature with abandon and no regard for how little of his humanity is left. 
This dynamic is something that we will see again later, but in this case, when the two meet, you have Boyd, who is entirely unsure of his moral compass and horrified by what he is becoming, clashing fiercely with the unrepentant cannibal in Calhoun, who embodies everything that the former fears, but also secretly desires. But even then, Boyd would never make those desires known to anyone, and is absolutely at odds with himself over them. This is not the case for Calhoun. If you are picking up the sense that desires in this film might extend beyond the eating of other people, you aren't the first to notice. This is not often mentioned in reviews of the film, but there is a palpable tension between the two male leads, and a great deal of that tension comes from the fact that Calhoun is not shy about the fact that he has chosen Boyd as a companion in his world. When Calhoun tips his hand and attacks those he had tricked into coming into the isolated area in the woods, Boyd is the only one that he leaves alive. Granted, the latter had tried to run away by jumping off of a cliff, but if the cannibal killer had wanted him dead, he would have found him. Instead, he recognized that same deep desire that existed in Boyd and spends the rest of the film trying to draw it out of him. During a particularly telling scene in this film, Calhoun confides in Boyd, telling him what might be the closest thing that he ever gets to telling the truth about how he became what he is. He gives him this story as a guide to show him the relief of embracing that urge, which is tearing Boyd apart at this point in the story. The two men have both eaten the bodies of other men, but Boyd is deeply ashamed of it and actively tries to suppress his hunger for more, while Calhoun is almost giddy in how reckless he indulges his urges. As the movie builds to the major showdown between the two, Calhoun even admits that he will kill Boyd if need be, but doesn't want to. His true fault as a villain is that he allows his want for a connection to make him vulnerable enough that the showdown is even possible. And during that final fight between the two, at one point, Calhoun and Boyd are locked together, where one of them will eventually die, and the other one will be left with the choice of whether or not to eat the other. The queer reading of this is easy enough to see, and made all the more obvious by the fact that there is exactly one female character in the whole film, was never even presented as an option for any kind of connection between anyone. The men are forced to confront their own needs for not only survival, but companionship with only each other. For Boyd, this is made even more uncomfortable that those at his station are notable for being essentially the rejects of the military world. The only one among them, who seems like he might be able to offer the lost lieutenant even an olive branch of friendship, is a man of the same rank who has more or less accepted his place there. It's not an accident that later on this man is the only one to survive, and even be taken under Calhoun's wing first. There's a bond between the three men through their cannibalistic acts, but the true tension exists between the two leads, and eventually it brings them into an almost intimate conflict. It's worth making a note of the fact that Calhoun spends the entire last half of the film forcing Boyd to look at his own nature, and either accept it or die. If this was a narrative that only concerned itself with the brutality of westward expansion, the cannibal 
would never have gone to the trouble of killing every other distracting character around them to bring the two leads closer together. That said, it also speaks to the dangers of forbidden desires, because in the end, it means that someone will die. We're going to pause our analysis for a minute to hear from a friend of the podcast, Gray, who has some exciting news and a good cause to tell you about. Hey everybody, this is Gray Ghoul of the Bay Area Alternative Rock and Roll Group, Pretty Frankenstein. And I'm just letting all of you know that our new single, We Are Not a Virus, is out on Bandcamp as of April 2nd. Cool thing is, all the proceeds from this single will actually be going to the Northern California sector of the API Equality Project, which is an awesome nonprofit organization that helps LGBTQ and Asian and Pacific Islander people alike. And we have a bunch of cool features on it of other Asian musicians aside from myself. So support some local music, um, support a really good cause, and don't be a dick. Fight all that hate out there with some love and support for something, you know? We Are Not A Virus, out now, prettyfrankenstein.bandcamp.com. Thank you. Thank you so much, Gray. Pretty Frankenstein can be found on their Bandcamp, and a link to their profile will be provided in the show notes. But for now, let's get back to our flesh eaters and their deadly desires. This truth of cannibalistic stories that center on forbidden desires that end in tragedy is the core element that the movie Raw revolves around. This 2016 horror film has been said by some to be part of the French extremity movement in cinema, and while not everyone might agree, this film is an uncomfortable watch regardless. Writer Dominic Suzanne Mayer, for Consequence of Sound, described it as a thoroughly nasty piece of horror filmmaking, and given some of the scenes, and the way that the story is framed, he's not wrong. That doesn't mean that it isn't artfully done, and it does give us a lot to think about in regards to cannibalism, and its links to love, attraction, and of course desire. It's easy to lose sight of what's going on under the gore, but this is still very much a coming-of-age story, with some of the notes in it more at home in a John Hughes movie than a gross-out shocker film. That said, if you are going to watch, if audience reactions on the festival circuit are anything to go on, it will indeed shock you. The story begins with Justine being dropped off by her parents at a highly regarded veterinary school, where her older sister, Alexia, is already a student. The AV's Katie Reif described our protagonist best when she says Justine is a classic sheltered overachiever, a model student who's never tasted flesh, either animal or human, which of course changes the day she begins her post-secondary life. Like all the other members of her first-year class, Justine is subjected to ritualistic hazing, which includes being forced to dress sexy, getting paraded into secret late-night parties, getting doused in blood, and having to eat raw rabbit organ meat. The experience is beyond uncomfortable and made no better by the relationship that she has with her sister that oscillates between being affectionate, to mentoring, to cruel, to outright hostile. And this is even before Justine is awakened to her twin hungers. Justine, you see, has been raised a staunch vegetarian her whole life, her parents very strictly enforcing a no-meat rule in her home. With that first taste of the raw rabbit kidney, 
Justine has two reactions, neither of which she knows how to contend with. The first is that her body violently reacts to it, breaking out in a horrifying rash that she later finds out her sister suffers from too. The other, more contentious issue, is that it awakens in her a compulsive need to eat flesh. She begins by trying to sneak burger patties at school, before moving on to raw meat in the fridge at night. It's not until she starts to become sexually attracted to her college roommate that she begins to get the idea of what she's really craving. When Alexia has a truly grotesque accident happen in front of Justine, it's the first time that the young woman realizes that all of her cravings are for human flesh. Instead of being horrified by this, Alexia then begins trying to mentor her sister in the ways in which she's been fulfilling her own forbidden needs. This becomes a major sticking point, however, when Justine balks at the idea morally, and gets even more hostile between the two when Alexia becomes enamored with the young man that Justine is living with. This movie covers a lot of ground, and could be its own analysis for someone wanting to tackle it. Unsurprisingly, however, very few people have wanted to tackle it at all, with there being reviews but no scholarly papers written about it that I could find. That said, there is a wealth to talk about, and we're going to start with the most basic element, those pesky desires, which plays a central theme to all of these characters. When we talk about desire in this film, we're specifically looking at two types, overt desires and something we'll call unwanted desires. To get a better understanding of both of these things, we're going to dig deeper into the characters, and the first one we have to look at is poor Justine. As mentioned, this is her coming-of-age story, and her world goes from the overly sheltered and controlled to chaotic and hedonistic in the blink of an eye. When she arrives at the school, it is deeply uncomfortable to watch as she struggles to fit in anywhere, knowing that she is different from everyone around her, and feeling even less kinship than ever to her own sibling. This is a great example of her overt desire to find a new normal in a world that is not only foreign, but also incredibly cold and often cruel. There's a great exchange that she has with the school nurse following her discovery that the rabbit meat made her break out in that horrible skin rash. The woman tells Justine about an overweight girl and her struggles to fit in. The story acts like a parable for both Justine and the audience, speaking directly to what Justine desperately wants, but warning her that it isn't going to grant her the peace that she actually wants. That desire to fit in, as it turns out, becomes the catalyst to everything that comes and sets up the major horrors that follow. From here, Justine is saddled with her unwanted desires, but has no idea of how to talk about them or even what to do about them. Her need for raw meat, and eventually human flesh, is all-consuming in her, and it gets worse as she becomes more entrenched in the world of the school, and all the upheaval that it brings into her life. This is very smartly paralleled to her sexual awakening, as she becomes closer to her roommate, Adrian and begins to make her first fumbling steps into adulthood. When she and her roommate do end up sleeping together, she's forced to contend with how to handle her newly discovered desires to consume the man she lives with both figuratively and literally. Here, the role of unwanted desire is more than just her cannibalistic urges, which she tries to assuage by biting herself to keep from hurting him. 
Still, the urge is tied to her want to have sex, and even by the end of the film, the twin hungers are never actually divorced from each other, and she's left with the dilemma of trying to figure out how to navigate them in a way that satisfies her. She discovers a brutal and horrifying means of feeding her monstrous hunger through her sister, but it is at the expense of her humanity, and the end result leaves her in a position where she has no guidance, but she must make a decision on who she will become because of what she knows now. In this sense, we can say that Justine's desires, both overt and unwanted, are all centered on choice. She's been given none up to this point in her life, and burdened with the new information that she is a cannibal, she's now faced with the task of figuring out how to live with what she is and what she wants. It's a choice that she has to make alone because, as has been alluded to, Alexia is far less conflicted about what she wants. Here the desire narrative changes a bit, as there is no sense of the cannibalistic urges being unwanted with Justine's older sister, Alexia. In an interview with Rue Morgue magazine, director Julia DeCorno describes her as an animal. She has no moral center whatsoever. She's hungry, she eats. And that's really basic animal needs. That said, there's still more to Alexia, as even though she's definitely got no moral compass, she isn't the embodiment of evil, either. She's also not without any sense of the world, like her younger sister is. She has learned the social ropes and has no difficulty fitting into the debauchery and the cruelty of the schooling world. In fact, she thrives in this environment, capable of straddling the line of her own desires, which we're going to frame as overt and covert. Unlike Justine, she has no difficulty trying to act the part of the role that's demanded of her, but there are moments in the film where her mask slips a bit, when she's faced with her sister's awkwardness. We see the overt desires here for what they are. A good example of this is when Justine initially refuses to eat the raw rabbit bits, and looks to Alexia to back her up that they grew up in a vegetarian household. It's one of the first times in the film that we see Alexia being more flappable than she initially seems. She doesn't seem to want to be popular at school, but when called out that she might not be who she is presented, she makes a show of eating the rabbit kidney to prove that she's still part of the crowd, despite the fact that her sister knows who she really is. In this way, Alexia is just as married to the need to fit in as Justine but her desire to be part of the schooling world is tied directly to her covert desires to eat human flesh. Her overt desire isn't framed as a want to fit in, so much as a need not to stand out. We find out why when we see how she sates her hunger. Alexia's status as a normal and even enthusiastic participant in the school and its rituals is a necessary cover for her activities, which are revealed in the cold open of the film before we even meet Justine. When DeCorno says that she has no moral center, this is never more evident than when you see Alexia throw herself into the path of a lone car on an isolated stretch of road, causing it to crash. With no one around to report the accident, she dusts herself off, gets up, and helps herself to the dying motorists inside, while they're still bleeding out. When she reveals this method of feeding herself to Justine, the younger sibling is horrified, and Alexia turns her anger on Justine for it. 
To this point, Alexia has been acting as only a partial mentor to her sister, still entrenched in the school, but trying to almost forcefully teach her the ways to get by through things like insisting she wear certain clothing, or giving her a bikini wax to make her more palatable for the men around her. In this sense, Alexia is acting almost like the bad mothers that we saw in our look at Monstrous Maidens, and this makes sense given that her and her sister's mother figure is wholly absent from this film, aside from the very beginning and the very end. Because the girls are left to their own devices, and Alexia is the one that seemingly has the power to navigate the social norms of their world, she's tasked not only with making Justine fit the role the school is trying to shape her into, but also teaching her the ways in which she hunts. The hostility builds between them as Justine is beginning to grow differently than her sister, and from that moment she moves from mentoring to antagonistic figure. That said, even when Alexia is at her worst, even when she full-on attacks Justine in one scene, there's still love between the two siblings that carries through even to the end, and this marks the younger sister as possibly the only person in the world who is safe from Alexia's hunger. If you're thinking that this seems to echo the dichotomy between Boyd and Calhoun in Ravenous, you aren't wrong. The major difference is that in that film, the two men had only each other, and their shared desires could be read as being as much for each other as they were to consume human flesh. Justine and Alexia definitely have a loving relationship, even at its most hostile, but their bond over their cannibalistic nature is mitigated by a third party, who's set apart by his own confusing set of desires. From the time that we first meet Adrian, Justine's roommate, we see him as out of place in some ways. Justine had requested a female roommate from the administration, and his response was that they gave her a gay man instead and Adrian is not shy about expressing his interest in men, with him hooking up with several in the first weeks of school. This is what sets him apart from being just another conquest in a love triangle between the two sisters, as they both develop their own specific interests in him. Unlike most stories that feature three people with conflicting desires, the one at the center is faced with a choice, but given very little sense of preference. In this case, Adrian is dealing with the attentions of two people who want him for very different reasons, and struggling with his own awakenings as a queer man. As we know from our discussion here, at one point in the film, he and Justine do end up having consensual sex, and this act is both enlightening and very scary for both parties involved. For Justine, we already know, it's not only the first time that she is in tune with her own sexual wants, but it's also the first time that she truly understands her hunger. For Adrian, it sends him into an identity crisis of what it means to be attracted primarily to men, but also to feel desire for Justine. At one point afterwards, he lashes out at her, saying that he didn't stay in the closet at home for so long to end up having sex with women. He feels a kind of betrayal of his own sense of self by an unwanted desire not dissimilar to what Justine herself feels. The major difference is that she has to navigate this unwanted desire in a way that allows her to avoid hurting someone she cares about, most of which shows externally. Adrian, on the other hand, faces his unwanted desires through his internal identity crisis. It's an interesting take to have, 
and one worth exploring because it shows that Justine isn't the only one coming of age in this film. Many queer narratives don't allow for there to be a kind of messy coming out, or even gray area in their stories about how someone might feel about their own sexual identity. This film features this one in a subtle way, but it effectively highlights how difficult the different facets of sexual desire and identity can be to contend with when one has no guidance in the matter. Of course, depending on who that guide is, perhaps cannibals like Justine might be better off figuring out these things alone. And by now, we can't hold him back any longer. His shadow looms over any story with cannibalism at its core, and his name is iconic in not only the horror genre, but in pop culture in general. We know what he likes to drink with his liver and fava beans. We know the sound of his voice, despite the fact that he's been portrayed by a number of different actors at this point. We know to refer to him by his professional title, even though it was understood that he was a criminal by the time that he made his breakthrough into the mainstream discourse. Dr. Hannibal Lecter. There is so much to cover with this character that it's inevitable that we're going to miss some things out of necessity. Because of that, we will have to save some other conversations about this character for another time, and if you head over to Patreon, you'll get a clue as to when we're going to be making our next appointment with him. For now, however, we're going to focus on where Hannibal started his journey into fiction through the first books that he was featured in. While most people know that Lecter was first introduced to the world in a book, there are still quite a few who aren't aware that his start came as a side character in the book Red Dragon, published in 1981 by author Thomas Harris. This is going to factor heavily in our discussion when we get to his most recent portrayal, but for the moment, we'll just talk about his introduction and why it's important. The real star of this book is meant to be the FBI profiler and the man who caught Hannibal Lecter himself, Will Graham. Despite the fact that Graham was nearly disemboweled by Lecter during his capture, the agent and the good doctor are forced to confront each other again when the FBI is looking for the killer that they've nicknamed the Tooth Fairy. While Lecter engages his former nemesis and helps him on his hunt, he also actively works against him, at one point giving the killer Graham's home address. This was an interesting character to have in this story, because despite the fact that his interactions with Will Graham were in the past, Hannibal's presence in this book somewhat overshadow even the horrifying killer that the agent is tracking. That said, if one were to read Red Dragon for a better look at the serial killer Cannibal, they would be mostly disappointed to find that he is confined to a conversation and a very brief resurgence at the end. What's interesting about this is that the story didn't really make room for Lecter at all, but his involvement in this tale shines all the same. And it was enough to inspire Harris to have yet another one of the FBI's best and brightest upcoming agents pay him a visit. Before it was a movie, The Silence of the Lambs was a book published in 1988. Here Harris actually gave his star character room to play a bit more, and he is a much more involved part of the narrative, to the point where he, once again, steals the limelight from the killer that we're actually hunting. If it's been a while since you last saw it, or if you've never read it, 
This book follows another brilliant up-and-coming agent, this one not even graduated out of the academy yet, and pits her in a race to find the serial killer known as Buffalo Bill. Returning character Jack Crawford is keen to send the young and very green Clary Starling to see Hannibal as a means of trying to extract information about this case from the good doctor, which Lecter immediately senses, even if the young woman he's speaking to doesn't. Through a series of exchanges with Starling, the two form a kind of bond to each other, learning to trust and understand one another in a place of mutual respect. In the end, Lecter gives the young FBI trainee the clues she needs to track down the killer on her own, giving her the means to realize her dreams of becoming a full agent. That is, when he's not killing people or convincing people to kill themselves. In both of these books, the character of Hannibal Lecter is given to us in very short but memorable flashes. We get so little of him in the first book, but his role in getting the information that endangered the protagonist to Francis Dollarhide is crucial to the end, and what becomes of Will Graham in this version, anyway. It says something to the strength of his presence that he's already incarcerated in these books, but his personality shines through in his very particular methods of dealing with his guests, and they are indeed guests of his. This means by which he deals with them is disturbing in that he speaks to them in a way that feels inviting. In both novels, he takes a keen interest in these agents and both times attempts to get in touch with them, following their ordeals and triumphs. This is part of the charm behind the character, that he isn't just a raging psychotic killer. It's also what makes him so frightening as a murderer, is that he can seem genuinely kind and reasonable. There's even something a bit affectionate to the way that he treats those that he deals with. To unpack this, let's look at the way that he treats Clary Starling in the novel. Upon meeting him, Starling is unaware that she's being sent in to get his insight on Buffalo Bill, and was only given a questionnaire for him to answer. Lecter sees through this attempt to outsmart him by Jack Crawford, but takes a shine to Starling anyway, because he recognizes her intelligence and her eagerness to learn. He sees in her a kindred spirit that he respects, and that was enough to prompt him to give her what he refers to as a valentine. This was the exact phrasing that Harris uses, and it's not an accident either, given what becomes of both characters. Later on in the novel, Lecter is ruminating on how to gift Buffalo Bill to Clarice and her alone. He knows full well who the killer is, and that he was capable of giving the FBI his name from the beginning. But not only does he enjoy playing cat-and-mouse games with authority figures, particularly those he holds in contempt, he also knew that if he cooperated with what they wanted from the beginning, the victory for the capture of Buffalo Bill would go to someone else, and Starling's contributions would have been minimal if not somewhat swept aside. Lacking in any kind of means to seduce those that he is fascinated by through touch or any other expression that we typically associate with courtship, Lecter uses his intellect to produce the kinds of gifts that no one else could. Granted, this doesn't reduce what Starling did to end Buffalo Bill's killing spree, but that is precisely why he gave her these gifts in the first place. It's a kind of curious behavior that makes him inherently more likable, but somehow even less human. 
And that was when we only knew him in the pages of a book. Lecter got to become so much more than this when we got a chance to hear him speak. Many would assume that we're going to jump straight into the Academy Award-winning film that made this character a household name. But fair is fair, and we have to start from the beginning, as there is something to be learned from our different portrayals of Lecter. If that's the case, we need to start with the one who played him first, which was Mr. Brian Cox in the 1986 film Manhunter. This film, starring William Peterson as Will Graham, was the first time that we got to see Dr. Lecter in his cell, the experience being far more clinical than we would see in films to follow. That's not the only thing that is more grounded in real life in this movie. For the good doctor, Cox said in an interview that his portrayal was inspired by a real killer by the name of Peter Manuel. Cox said that what he took away from looking into Manuel as a person was how strikingly normal he seemed. This was a man who'd committed a number of killings in Scotland, but he represented himself when he was caught and seemed perfectly ordinary, which was what Cox found so disturbing. He brought that element to his portrayal, which as we've already established, is part of Hannibal's strengths. That said, Lecter here is openly calculating and actively ribbing his nemesis for information. There's no seduction going on with this version, but there is a clear emphasis on how smart this version of Lecter is. He speaks rapidly, and he's almost animalistic in his methods for trying to find a way to get under Graham's skin while they are speaking to each other. His fishing for more clues into Graham's life give the sense that his hunger isn't just for flesh, but his personal life. If we take this interpretation, the cannibal act here isn't just to consume the body, but the whole person, and his tactics are to begin with the mind. It's chilling because the actor doesn't rely on any kind of scare tactics, and the audience is left with the inherent understanding that he's dangerous, and you have every right to be afraid of him. Of course, this isn't the person who immediately comes to mind when we think of Hannibal Lecter. It's true that Cox gives an excellent and creepy performance as this character, but it's not his voice that we think of when we think of someone saying the words, Good evening, Clarice. That honor goes to none other than Sir Anthony Hopkins in the 1991 film The Silence of the Lambs. As an Oscar-winning film, it's no wonder that this movie and this particular portrayal have words like iconic pinned to it. The images and the lines have been so repeated, parodied, and reimagined through pop culture that many people didn't even have to see the film to know where they came from. Lecter's mask that he's been forced to wear when he travels has become such a marker for the character that just looking at the image of it will evoke the scenes with Hopkins being wheeled around in a straitjacket. That said, his portrayal goes well beyond his mask and even his voice. It's inevitable that any actor who takes on a role that's been done by someone else is going to draw comparisons, but no two actors will ever get the same result the same way. We talked before about the way that Brian Cox gave us a much more grounded lector, complete with a fairly normal and clinical-looking cell. For Cox, the character is given a real-world setting, and he acts accordingly, giving Lecter, in turn, a much more human performance. By contrast, 
Hopkins's lector is from the underworld. We know this immediately given where he and the protagonist first make their acquaintance. Instead of a sterile whitewashed cell, this time Lecter isn't behind bars but glass, and his cell has stone walls that seem more like a cave. In order to get to him, Starling has to be guided into a basement and through a series of doors by the only person that Hannibal deems mostly okay in his situation, an orderly named Barney. He acts as her guide to the underworld before she meets the man himself and he gives her the rules that she needs to follow to make her way back to the surface. With each conversation, Clarice is given something, but as their interactions become more frequent, she's also forced to leave something of herself with Hannibal. Again, we see that kind of hunger that we noticed with the previous movie when it came to Will Graham, but in this case, Hopkins doesn't sniff out the information and immediately try to draw it out like a syringe. Instead, he convinces Starling to tell him directly, giving her the gift of advancement and career without her even knowing it. It's here that we see the romantic side of Lecter that was presented in the Harris novel, but through Hopkins's performance, there's an added layer or two to this man. In the interview mentioned earlier, Brian Cox describes Sir Anthony Hopkins's portrayal of Lecter as being very grand gunul, and he's not wrong. The way in which this new Lecter talks is both sophisticated, but with an edge of the grotesque. It's one of the things about Lecter that endures is that he abhors rudeness in people, but he also absolutely loves to push their buttons and make them uncomfortable. That said, Hopkins brings a kind of artful skill to it. In certain scenes, he's asking wildly inappropriate questions specifically to Starling and the Republican senator whose daughter is missing. He's amused by their reactions and gauges his responses to them accordingly. Contrasting this, he's also undoubtedly charming. He speaks in slow, meaningful tones that show that he thinks a lot about what he says and is very slow to react, making each action he does feel that much more diabolical in how deliberate it is. While Cox wasn't given much room to get very artful in the few conversations that he has with Will Graham, Hopkins is given much more room to stretch out and fill this role with a kind of elegance and even otherworldliness. In an interview with Hopkins in the bonus features for the 2002 film Red Dragon, he describes Lecter as a boogeyman and brings up fairy tale images of figures like the Big Bad Wolf. This is an important note to linger on because it tells us something more about the cannibal and how he's transforming in this story. Hopkins stated in the featurette Lecter and Me that when he first saw the script for The Silence of the Lambs without reading it, he thought it was a fairy tale story. In this case, however, he's less Big Bad Wolf, but he shares much more in common with Baba Yaga, or even Frau Hola. Clarice is sent to him with essentially nothing but her wits, and Lecter gives her the task of disentangling a mystery figure that may very well kill her. When she uses his gifts to a better end than those who came before her, however, Lecter has essentially made her dreams come true. And those he holds in contempt, like Dr. Chilton, the enterprising warden of the asylum that he's kept in, he punishes and almost certainly eats. That said, 
Lecter still isn't that predictable in this portrayal as it stands. He's cordial, but he is happy to turn on people if it suits him. He is also quite artistic in everything he does, from the drawings that he makes from his memories of the places he's been, to the means by which he displays the disemboweled bodies of the police officers that had been holding him in a cell. There's a scene in which Hannibal is covered in blood, but elated as he listens to a classical score after having beaten a man to death. The image is as aesthetically pleasing as it is chilling, because it shows him as a monster who does value something, but it certainly isn't pain or human life for those he deemed unworthy. It's a different kind of monster than Cox had brought out in the character, but it's still not the only one to find in Hannibal. It's this angle that Brian Fuller decided to tackle when he took the reins of the show Hannibal. Premiering on NBC in 2013, Hannibal begins well before any of our previous films had, and incorporates elements of the books, particularly Red Dragon, as well as instances from Harris's 2006 prequel novel Hannibal Rising. The very first episode of the series introduces us to Will Graham, and his involvement in a case that is vexing special agent Jack Crawford, the murder spree of the Minnesota Shrike. Graham is brought in as a profiler, but he is haunted by the things that he sees, prompting Crawford to approach esteemed psychiatrist and secret cannibal Dr. Hannibal Lecter to act as both a mental health counselor for Will, as well as an advisor on whether or not he is sane enough to carry out his duties. We're getting to the show soon, but before we can talk about the changes that it introduced to our characters, we should take a look at the foundations that set them in motion. It should be noted that this first episode of the show and the relationship between the two leads is different in the books, in which Graham was familiar with Lecter, but their interactions were limited to just his questions, and Will nearly being murdered by Hannibal when he discovered the good doctor's secrets. Their antagonistic relationship is much more prominent in this case, and that is reflected in Manhunter. Where it changed was in the 2002 film Red Dragon, that called Sir Anthony Hopkins back to the role of Lecter. The beginning of that movie features Will Graham, this time played by Edward Norton, discussing the issue of the profile for the murderer he's hunting being wrong. In this version, Lecter, played by Hopkins, isn't his therapist, but rather a confidant that Graham is spitballing with as he tries to figure out the puzzle of the case, unaware that he's speaking with the serial killer he's hunting. When he puts the pieces together, he's attacked by Lecter, but, unlike the previous films, we get to see Hannibal in the act of attempting to murder Will. From this point on, Lecter is still Graham's nemesis, but there isn't quite the fear element in Will like there was in Manhunter. Even though the two actors deliver the exact same lines as they were written in the book, the interactions are very much different. Cox is trying to unnerve and sting in his approach. He's watching for the fault that Graham may present to him. Hopkins, by contrast, is still playing with the one that got away. He's still unnerving, but there's a kind of joy in it for him that goes beyond the sadistic, and though it's still an antagonistic relationship, it's one that Lecter thoroughly enjoys. We bring this particular element in Red Dragon up for a couple of reasons. 
But not the least of which is that, despite the fact that Fuller made clear that he was not attempting to stomp on familiar ground when he created his series, this scene created a cornerstone for his interpretation. For one, it establishes for the first time Lecter and Graham had a relationship at all. Again, to point to the books that came before, Will Graham had been the one to apprehend Lecter at nearly the cost of his own life, but he had done so off-screen and without many details. While he had met Lecter, their interactions were few, professional, and banal, until the attempted murder and all. The film took the first step to introduce Lecter as a larger presence in this story, giving them a grounding for working together to find Francis Dollarhide. That isn't all, however, as this opening scene, possibly inadvertently, gives the two a more intimate moment that was not at all part of the books, and lends itself to that more seductive reading of the cannibal killer. When Graham realizes that Hannibal is the killer, the film takes the very cliché route of the killer being right behind him, and Lecter plunges a knife into Will's abdomen. As he pushes the knife in, Lecter pins Graham to the wall and whispers to him what is going to happen. His tone is gentle, almost loving in a sense, as he reassures his murder victim that he doesn't want him to feel any pain and that he's going into shock, and it should feel like slipping into a warm bath. The scene borders on almost affectionate as he tells Will that he admires him and he explains that he's interested in eating his heart. This scene is so significant because it gives us the first full view of the romantic cannibal that had been a part of the character from the book The Silence of the Lambs. The difference here is that he is free to express his interest and admiration through a physical threat, but even then, this is mostly because, as far as Lecter is concerned, the courtship was over. Before the attack, Lecter tells Will that he would love to get him on his couch, again showcasing an interest in his mind. This element is consistent throughout all of the interpretations of the character that we've seen. His attraction to anyone is through their mental acuity, and the kind of challenges that they present as well as the ones that they can handle. And we can't leave this without acknowledging that Hannibal reveals in the scene that his interest is in eating Will's heart. In the context of the moment, he's complimenting his victim, telling him that he admires his courage, and that he's thoroughly enjoyed their game. It frames the want to eat his heart differently than it would seem if Cox had been the one to deliver those lines. There is respect there, and it's not lost on the audience that the way he tells his victim all these things, as he gently guides Will to the ground, that the choice of which organ to eat has some deeper meaning than just his appreciation for how healthy said organ is and how good it will taste in a stew. These different views all point to Lecter transcending what he once was. Roger Ebert once wrote that Hannibal Lecter was comparable to movie monsters like Nosferatu, Frankenstein, and Norman Bates, stating that they behave according to their nature and they are misunderstood. While it is debatable about how well each of these monsters fits these two criteria, Hannibal only evolved into the second one more recently and over his various outings in pop culture. Ebert argues that these characters have no moral sense, but Hannibal Lecter absolutely does have a moral compass, 
which is revealed over his evolution in different media he's presented in. Initially in the novel, Red Dragon, he is someone who enjoys playing the role of the villain, and he knows that at some point he will get his upper hand on the system because he's smart enough to find it. In his next turn in The Silence of the Lambs, he is a brilliant killer with a penchant for making people squirm, and a slight romantic side, even if it is a bit unusual. Even then, however, in the book and the movie that followed, it was well established that he had a particular dislike for rudeness. There was a moral core in there, even if it wasn't something that the rest of humanity could relate to. In Manhunter, he became Flesh, and the portrayal turns from the idea of a charismatic character to an image of a real man that might lurk in your social circles. Cox brought in the element of the hidden beast like a rattlesnake that might strike at any point. In the films The Silence of the Lambs and Red Dragon, he keeps this unpredictable nature but becomes more ethereal and even more seductive as the whole story builds to his rise from the underworld to walk among us. At this point, we welcome Mads Mikkelsen to the table as the Luciferian incarnation of our dashing cannibal anti-hero. We're using the term anti-hero here because as this series evolves and the relationship between Will Graham and Hannibal Lecter shifts, there's a strong case to be made that though he is monstrous in his actions, Lecter is the one person in the show who cares the most about what becomes of Will Graham. That doesn't mean that dying isn't on the menu for Agent Graham, but that's getting ahead of ourselves. For the moment, let's take a look at who this version of Hannibal Lecter is. In a 2013 interview with Digital Spy, Brian Fuller said that Mads Mikkelsen talked about the character not so much as Hannibal Lecter, the cannibal psychiatrist, but as Satan, the fallen angel who's enamored with mankind and has an affinity for who we are as people but was definitely not among us. He was other. This concept of the other is something that Fuller also spoke of in terms of his choice of casting a Danish actor. Prior to, both versions of Lecter that we know in pop culture were played by English actors, who were both able to portray the character with the marker of a slight accent. This may seem like a small detail, but it's worth noting that North Americans are used to and often hear English-accented speech in pop culture, but rarely hear anything else unless the characters are meant to showcase their heritage. This version of Hannibal stands out because he is very comfortable in his American setting, but his voice marks him as an immediate outsider. In choosing Mickelson, someone with a much more pronounced accent than the previous actors had, Fuller confirms that this decision is actively engaging the perceived threat of anything that's non-American to his mostly American audience. It was a brilliant move by the showrunner, and one that carries more weight because it so perfectly embodies all the same menace that Cox had in his performance, but with the charm and the danger of Hopkins' lecture as well. But Mickelson is still distinct from both of them, because despite his best efforts in his film tenure, Hopkins was never allowed to fully realize the cannibal's romantic side, and Cox was never even given one. In the show Hannibal, it turns out that the other is not only capable of love, 
but when he brings it out in others, it also brings out some of their darkest instincts. One of the hallmarks of the show Hannibal, and something that has been highly praised by its still very active fanbase, is the relationship that develops between the title character and Will Graham. As we've already seen to this point, Hannibal and Will have had a connection since they were first introduced, Graham being the one that captured Lecter. Even then, however, Hannibal has always been quick to point out to Will that they share more in common with each other than they don't. What the show acknowledges, where all the previous adaptations gloss over, is how Hannibal treats his nemesis. This is a man who supposedly brought him to justice, but, as we already know, Lecter wasn't particularly concerned about that. His activities behind bars were boring, but hardly inactive. He continued his academic pursuits, and read and even wrote papers in his field of expertise. And he even got the odd kill in when he could. He was absolutely able to kill Will Graham on his own, and it could be argued that he only ever sent Francis Dollarhide after him because he knew that Will would eventually catch the killer. Even then, he knew that Will survived his ordeal with the killer after Lecter gave him the means to find Graham, and never followed up on trying to finish the job after Will Graham left the FBI. His choice not to kill Graham is just as significant as it was that Lecter both wrote to Will after his face got cut up and asked Clary Starling about it. It wasn't just him gloating, either, when he brought up what happened to Will in the books. The snarky letter that he attempted to send Graham stated that Lecter hoped he wouldn't be too ugly, and if read a certain way, could almost sound like a bitter lover making snide remarks to an ex. But he still refused to kill him, even once he had escaped from the asylum, and it's not like he hadn't kept tabs on him enough to do it. Harris was unforgivingly hard on Will Graham in the books, giving the man a mighty disfigurement and making his wife leave him post-Dollarhide attack. The films that followed were instrumental in softening up the tragedy of his life, but they also lost a great deal of his complexity. Graham was always someone that Lecter admired for his intelligence, but he also admired the heavy dark side that the man had. It could be read as revenge that he gave Dollarhide the means to find Graham, but it can also be understood as a frustration that this was a man who embodied everything that Lecter was and still didn't choose to use his intellect, his incredible memory, or his talents in the way that he could have. In the books, he then destroys that intellect by becoming an alcoholic. In Manhunter and Red Dragon, this isn't something that's addressed at all. Both movies allow the actors to keep their faces intact, and while Manhunter doesn't give Lecter the last word, Red Dragon actually has the good doctor wishing him well, with some added snark, of course. Neither of these adaptations allow us to see the deep well of troubled soul that Will Graham actually was. That is exactly where Fuller aims his flashlight, and the result gives Hannibal more than enough room to build an intense and somewhat disturbing love story. From the onset of the series, Will Graham and Hannibal Lecter establish a complicated relationship, with Lecter acting as both a therapist and a kind of covert mentor to the troubled profiler. 
When we meet him, Graham has no interest in getting involved in the Bureau's case, and Jack Crawford has to practically beg him to do it. The introduction of Lecter is supposed to be for the upkeep of Will's mental health, but from the beginning, Hannibal begins circling Graham and using the murders to get his attention. He draws him even closer by introducing a daughter figure into their lives to whom Will becomes very attached. It's calculated and very manipulative in nature, but it also tells us what Hannibal wants and what he understands about Will Graham. We see the seductive elements that were touched on in the book and brought to life by Hopkins reach their full potential here. From the beginning, this version of Hannibal is actively pursuing Will, and the introduction of a daughter figure is all part of the plan to build around them both a kind of family that would be denied to both of them. This is the truth in Hannibal that is never shown in the other on-screen versions. It's not an accident that the book Red Dragon dashed away Will Graham's attempts at a normal life, because he always carried that darkness with him. Hannibal understood this from the first time that we as an audience ever saw them meet. He mocked that attempt at normalcy in the books because it was a false front and Hannibal knew it. In the show, Will is far more uncomfortable in his role with the FBI than his previous two incarnations, because he admits that there's an enjoyment to what he thinks. It terrifies him, but he proceeds to act as though he's not haunted by his insight into the horrors that he sees. It's that terror that opens the door for the good doctor to help him accept who and what he is. We've looked at all the versions of this cannibal that there are, but we need now to take a look at what he's telling us through his acts and his chosen partners. From his first appearance, Hannibal Lecter was someone who was frightening not only because of the power that he possessed, but the control with which he could wield it. When Lecter asked Will Graham how he caught him, Graham defers his question and asserts that the difference between them is that Hannibal is insane. The trouble with this is that he is very much not. Lecter is definitely just as other as Brian Fuller has said, but he navigates society better than most. He isn't simply able to get by, he is respected and venerated as being at the top of his profession. And it's only through this amount of charisma and talent that he's able to create for himself a kind of community that carries the illusion of acceptance, if only for a short while. Even without the queer additions to the show, Hannibal Lecter is a lone figure, and his aims and goals are always to connect. He doesn't relate to other human beings as a person, and eating them does allow him to transcend those separations, but it also marks him as other in society. Someone that has to hide from others, but also someone who can control the world he builds with them as well. He reacts poorly to those like Will Graham from the book, wherein he punishes that lack of connection when he knows that it's something that he could have. He also fosters that fondness forever, which is what we see in the later books with his connection to Clarice Starling. When she becomes disillusioned and fed up with the corruption that she sees in the Bureau, Hannibal not only offers her acceptance, but unquestioned love in return. 
What this tells us is that Hannibal was always capable of this kind of love, and in need of this kind of connection. In the TV show, he finds exactly this in Will Graham. And though there's a lot of dramatic tension that comes from Graham's own struggles to accept his own nature, eventually, the pair reach the same connection with each other that had only really been a reading before in the books and fully denied in the previous films. This adaptation then presents our cannibal as someone who is not only powerful, but someone who is capable of drawing out and accepting someone's dark side. This might be misread by some as equating the queer behavior as dangerous, but it should be noted the way that the food and particularly the preparation of it is presented. Unlike other films that want to use cannibalism as a means to showcase how backwards and uncivilized a person or culture is, Hannibal is nothing if not loving in the way that he creates his dishes. The food is dressed up to look its best, and he takes the greatest amount of care in making the dishes that he serves to those around him. Even when he eats alone, Lecter savors the meal, elevating the act of eating another person to something almost romantic. And he isn't often shown to be eating alone. He cooks for a great number of guests, and creates meals that draw people together in communal affairs. He never simply slaps something down on a plate, and makes you wonder where it came from, even if he is actually serving you someone you knew. In this way, he creates cannibals of those around him, allowing them to participate in his world, even if it is unknowingly. And occasionally, someone whom he connects with intellectually and emotionally wanders into that community, and when they do, he takes special care to foster that aspect in them, to bring them closer to him. As Hannibal Lecter and other notable figures show us, the act of eating another person is not only a complex, but also a very productive element of storytelling. It's true that there are many other narratives out there that use it as a means of depicting untrue, and often unfair, ideas about race, culture, desperation, and poverty of any kind, but we've seen here that there's so much more to this trope to explore, and even to celebrate. Cannibalism can give us the means to express power imbalances that won't be easily ignored. The visceral images that it conjures for the audience doesn't allow people to remain neutral in the face of the serious problems, and that image can survive and even change the minds of some people years after we first encountered it. Sometimes cannibal stories can be used as a means to showcase a kind of power that someone has, or even the kind of power someone desires. It is a vehicle to critique society, but it can also be used as a means to talk about love, hope, and faith. When cannibalism is used to depict love, it adds so many other layers to the narrative, giving us a look at the messy, hidden, dangerous and forbidden or denied aspects of human emotion and connection. Sometimes it's a harrowing look into the psyche of someone who desperately needs guidance, and their clumsy trials end in confusion, agony, and death. Other times, it reveals a deeper emotional connection that we all crave between others, and looks at those who would seek it out at any cost, right or wrong. For that reason, 
I don't think we've seen the last of this, or our favorite cannibals, anytime soon. And with that, I think we can put the cover on this dish. Thank you all so much for joining me, and thank you so much for your patience. This episode has been a delight to compile, but it has also been a lot to do. (laughs) Going outside the norm here for a second or two, I do need to acknowledge that there will be some changes in how this podcast is produced in the foreseeable future. If you want more information, everything will be posted on my website at SinisterGardenLegacy.com. Alternatively, you can subscribe to my Patreon, wherein you will not only get more of the background information on what's going on, but also early episodes, extra credit resources, and even some looks into the other projects I have on the go, which are currently eating a lot of my life right now. And speaking of which, a very special thank you to my patrons, Maggie, Tim, Jonathan, Melissa, Rihanna, Bibliobot, and Megan. I appreciate all of your support and your feedback as I've been crafting these episodes, and without you, this podcast wouldn't be available on even half the platforms that it is. So I thank you all. And again, thank you so much for your patience, and thank you so much for listening. We are transitioning to a much more haphazardly schedule, but the next topic up to the plate is none other than the very much promised return to Universal Monsters. This time we're going to the opera to visit a particularly meddlesome phantom that has had quite the facelift over the years since his first and second run as part of the Universal group. So please join me next time when we take our look at the book-turned-classic film, The Phantom of the Opera. But until then, remember to eat well, keep studying, and wherever possible, let your curiosity be your guide.